0: Good evening and welcome to today's podcast from the Claysmore English department. My name's James Carpenter and I'm going to talk about Keats's poem To Autumn. This is regarded by many as one of the most extraordinary poems of the English language and in a short podcast it's not possible to do justice to that opinion or or indeed to the poem itself. But what I would like to do is to try to explore why people have regarded this poem as quite so great. It is, perhaps obviously enough, about autumn. Stanza 1 is dominated by the idea of the season and what's taking place within the season. But just as the poem Ode to a Nightingale was more than just about a nightingale, it was about creativity and the song of the nightingale and the connection that Keats feels with that creativity and the sense of fleeting connection with poetic inspiration and how the poetic inspiration leaves him at the end of the poem – Autumn too is uh, Im- embodies a-, a grander theme, and w- we sense what that theme is very early on. Um, it's about time and the passing of time. Um, the poem begins with the word season, and it's dominated by words linked with time. We hear, for example, at the end of stanza two about the last oozings hours by hours. We look see in stanza three. The description in line twenty five of the soft dying day, and so uh, underlying whatever this poem's about is a sense of movement through time um, we hear about that we hear questions about the songs of spring, so so we're we're, we're conscious that this is about a, a poem about the end of the year and ultimately about the end of a day as well as um the sun sets and the the gnats mourn among the river sallows. So the end of a season, uh, the end of a year, the end of a day and of course we can't help but notice that it's also about uh, the end of a life, the passing of time and, mort- and, and about human mortality. So stanza three particularly is dominated by image or images of dying, not death but dying, the soft dying day, the stubble plains with rosy hue. We hear about the choir of gnats mourning. We hear about how the gnats sink on the light wind as the light wind lives or dies and how the lambs are now full-grown. He doesn't call them sheep he calls them full-grown lambs and in this description of the full-grown lambs we have precisely the point that the awareness of their lamb quality and the awareness that times passed and they're now fully grown. So underlying the Whole poem is a sense of the passing of time and a dawning awareness of mortality, and of, of the passing of human life. But what's interesting is quite how Keats manages to convey this. So he moves in the first stanza from really a static scene where the growth and the movement is all internal, um, into stanza two where there's some movement, but the the movement is a kind of arrested movement. The the furrow is half reaped, uh, the the swath the next swathe has been spared, the the head is steadied, in the midst of movement, and so there's this sense of equipoise, a sense of balance between one moment and the next, between a time, if you like, is almost suspended and the passing of time is is arrested. It, it it's it's, it's, a, it's almost a moment of hesitation, and um, before the end arrives." And we see that in the last line of the second stanza, where he talks about watching the last oozings hours by hours. So one has to imagine someone sitting by the cider press kind of waiting um, for the apples to finally to yield up their their last drops. In the third stanza there's a feeling that there's more movement but a close analysis shows that really the only movement described, external movement, is of the, the choir of gnats who rise and fall as the wind lives or dies. The The rest of the movement is really in our own sensibility, that as we read we become conscious of the soft dying day, of the stubble planes, and also of the sounds that, that are in the air. No movement but the sounds, the hedge crickets are singing, the lambs are bleating, the red breast is whistling, and the swallows are gathering and twittering. So there's a movement with the gnats, and there's a movement with the swallows, but otherwise the movement is really within ourselves, and it's about a growth of awareness. That's the movement that's taking place, a growth of awareness. And how does Keats prompt that growth of awareness? Well, um, characteristically he tells us what it's not or he he says something that forces us to think of something different so this, this process actually began in line 10 of the poem where he tells us about the bees and he says autumn is you know set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease but as we take on the sense of that line, we become aware, of course, that warm days will cease. So there's a a movement that begins in our own mental or emotional response to the poem, which is about an awareness that the warm days will cease. The same thing happens more than once in the second stanza. The reference to the half-reaped furrow, we complete the idea by realising that the furrow will be fully reaped, that the next swathe will be cut so although it's not happened yet it's about to happen and our sense of completeness makes that idea dawn upon us in the third stanza it's even stronger because we hear about the soft dying day the day is not dead but it's dying an idea that's reinforced by the choir mourning we also hear about the wind living or dying The lambs are now full grown, so there's a sense that um, their life um, has an end, that that they're not sort of perfectly located in some idyllic timeless zone. The hedge crickets are singing about something, the red breast is whistling about something, and of course what they're whistling about is the onset of winter, the end of the season, and in that sense the passing of time. And Keats very cleverly has achieved this in the first line of the third stanza, third stanza by asking us, where are the songs of spring, and then telling us not to think of them. So we don't think of them, but we have thought of them, because he's prompted us to think about them. So there's a consciousness within our own minds of the passing of time, the end of autumn, the end of the year, and a sense of the coming winter, which the, the hedge crickets and the red breast sense. We sense too. And the final line of the poem is perhaps the cleverest one of all, because the the, the, the swallow's anxiety, conveyed through its twittering, is something that they may, might not be... the cause of which they might not be conscious of, but we certainly are. They're about to migrate, the winter's about to, to arrive, and another year is about to pass. However, Keats isn't gloomy about this, because contained within all these images... Is the sense of something cyclical, that there will be spring, that the swallows will return, and that um, the light wind lives or dies, but it does live as well as die. So there's a, again a, a sense of balance about the end of the year and not a sense of gloominess. But why is this poem regarded as so extraordinary? I think it's because it's so unobtrusive that Keats himself wrote in one of his letters how um, poetry should have no design upon us he, he, he rejects poetry like Wordsworth's poetry which, which clearly has a design upon us um, he says that poetry should come as naturally as leaves to a tree, otherwise it's best if it doesn't come at all and so there's a sense in this poem that he achieves that, for example there's no voice for the poet, there's no I in the poem in in, um, Ode to a Nightingale it it begins my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense you know there's there's a there's a very strong presence of the poet and even in um, the other two odes that we've looked at uh, Ode on Melancholy and and Ode on the Grecian Urn there's there's a presence that the poet is present in Ode on Melancholy we see it in the third stanza where we hear about none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape and we're we're immediately reminded of the presence of Keats or the presence of the poet um, whose strenuous tongue is striving for some sensation that he can write about. In Ode on a Grecian urn um, the observer is present throughout, it's quite clear although there's no reference to the observer that the observer is reflecting upon what he's looking at, the urn, and at the end there's an explicit reference to generations such as ours. So we and the poet are present in the poem. But in autumn this doesn't occur. And it's almost as though Keats has attained a kind of perfection in this ode in which the poet is completely withdrawn from the poem. He's achieved, if you wish, um, what he set out to when he talked about Uh, striving for negative capability, that this poem, To Autumn, becomes a poem about us and our reactions to the passing of time and uh, our sorrow at the, or or, um, acceptance at the mortality that, that we have, but without being told that that's what we ought to be thinking about, that the poem seems to have no design upon us, it simply presents us with the situation, and the effect of the poem is entirely within us. It is therefore a perfect example of Keats's idea of negative capability, and perhaps it's the reason that he wrote no more odes. After all, when he started to write the ode, it was in some sense to setting out to create precisely this effect. Once he's written to Autumn, perhaps there is nothing more that he can do with the form. Jack Stillinger, who's, who's written so much about Keats, identified the fact that um, so many of Keats's poems are about a movement from what one might call the real world into an imaginary world, and how one emerges from that imaginary world changed by the experience of imagining whatever one has imagined. And Stillinger later on went on to suggest that Keats is particularly interested in the moment of transition from the real world into the imaginary world I think when he was writing this he was talking primarily about the eve of St Agnes or the eve of St Agnes was what prompted it but this is precisely what Keats is elaborating in the poem To Autumn To Autumn is about precisely that moment of awareness of two separate worlds the awareness of what's immortal and eternal and cyclical and also the awareness of loss and uh, parting and uh, mortality. It's, It's the moment, if you like, that he refers to in Ode on Melancholy, where he talks about where joy, whose hand is ever at his lips, is bidding adieu. It's that moment of parting, before the parting's happened, in which, in which moment, something exquisite takes place within us, where we're in touch with something bigger or wider than ourselves, with a sense of um, emotional connection, but also a sense of uh, consciousness of loss as well. It's the moment, it's the fleeting moment, the moment of evanescence that Keats seems to have strived for in all his odes. So far we've talked about the main ideas of the ode, and dwelt a little bit on the diction and the imagery. I don't want to discuss it now, but those of you who are studying it might also wish to look at the rhyme scheme that he's used, and how it varies during the course of the poem. Because the rhyme scheme itself, particularly the difference between the first stanza and the second, uh, embodies this sense of delayed completion, a sense that um, time hesitates or time moves slightly more quickly than we would wish it to. And if you analyse the rhyme scheme, you'll see that something quite interesting takes place. The second thing we haven't talked about, but which you might wish to explore, is the way Keats in this ode has varied the length of his stanzas. Up until now, all his odes have been written in stanzas of ten lines, although in the Ode to a Nightingale, there was a significant variation in in what he did when he used that very short eighth line. Into autumn, the stanzas contain eleven lines. And again, um, as you think about the poem, you might wish to reflect upon why he's chosen to do that, And I suppose the specific question is in what way does that choice of form or that variation in form reflect his preoccupation with time and the passing of time or that moment of suspension of time before it's completed. I'd like to finish just by reading the poem. To autumn Season of mist and mellow fruitfulness Close bosom friend of the maturing sun, Conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit The vines that round the thatch eaves run, To bend with apples the mossed cottage-trees, And fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, To swell the gourd, and plump the hazel-shells With a sweet kernel, to set budding more And still more later flowers for the bees, Until they think warm days will never cease, For summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad May find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, Thy hair soft-lifted by the winnowing wind, Or on a half-reaped furrow, sound asleep, Dressed with the fume of poppies, While thy hook spares the next swathed, and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider-press, with patient look, thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, Born aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, And full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourn, Hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red-breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies."